Right now, I'm walking through the ancient streets of the old city, Jerusalem. And it was built upon the foundations of many other cultures from many other times. And it's a lot like our faith. Our faith has come down to us through the stories, the events, and the lives of other people that God has used. And so, in this series, we're inviting you to walk along with us as we look at those ancient foundations for our faith. This series is called Origins. Welcome to our new series, Origins. So glad that you made it. Whether you're a regular attender or guest or even watching online, we're thrilled that you're going to participate in this unique journey where we're seeking to bring the context of the Bible and Jesus' life into our weekend experience during the fall. And I hope that you'll take advantage of it and that you'll be inviting others to take advantage of it as well. I I tell you, I've had the unique privilege of leading three groups from Northridge Church to Israel and through the Holy Land. And it seems like everyone always has the same experience. They basically say that the Bible came alive for them for the very first time when they were there or came alive in a new way to them once they were there. And that always makes people who haven't gone or can't go feel like, oh, great, well, you know, I guess I'll never understand the Bible. It'll never come alive for me. But that's not true. The Bible doesn't come alive for them because they go to Israel. Here's the reason the Bible comes alive. The context of the Bible is key to understanding it. The context of the Bible, the context, the setting of the life of Christ is the key to understanding it. And and when they go to Israel, what happens is they're automatically transported into the context and the culture that helps make the Bible relevant. Now, it's modern-day Israel. It's different. But we are able to introduce them to elements and to places where the context opens up to them. And when the context opens up to them, the Bible opens up to them. It's our goal in this series we're calling Origins to to bring the context into this setting so that you can have the same opportunity that those who have had the privilege to go to Israel have had. We want you to, as you invest in this series and experience it, to be coming away with the same thoughts that they have. Wow, the Bible came alive like never before through this series. I never saw that before. I I've read that passage over and over, or I've heard that truth taught over and over, but, but it 
It never became clear until now. We're hoping that this experience will transport you into a new place in your relationship with God and your understanding of his truth. Now, since the whole series is based upon this idea that the context is key to understanding, I wanted to spend the first part of this weekend's talk showing you from the Bible how this is true, that the context really can change your understanding of what God is saying. It will be the key for you to understand it. So I'm going to introduce three passages to you, and then, then in the later part of the talk, I'm going to dive into one particular pillar of our faith, one particular faith that gets us all the way back to the origins, to what God designed us to be and who God designed us to be. And it's illustrated beautifully in the life of Christ. But first, the context. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 3 and two verses, verses 15 and 16. And as you're turning there or getting ready to look at these passages, I, I need to give you the context. Jesus himself, though having already lived on the planet and ascended to be back with the Father, comes back and talks to one of his disciples, John. And he gives John the message of things that are and future things that will be. And, and he specifically, in the opening chapters of the Revelation, tells John that he wants to deliver specific messages to seven literal churches that were around during that day in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey now. And they're called the seven churches of the Revelation. One of those churches was the church at Laodicea, a real church filled with real people in a real place, Laodicea. And he was saying, you know, Jesus to this church, you're not doing right. You think you're doing right. You think you're doing great. You're not doing great. And then look what he says in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Words of Jesus to this real church. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you, vomit you out of my mouth. Isn't that a beautiful metaphor for this beautiful Sunday morning? Isn't it? Mm. Now, all of my life being exposed to religion and hearing about this, and then even after coming to faith in Christ later in my life, this is how I was told to understand this passage. God wishes that you were hot in your relationship with him. I mean, you were designed to have a relationship, and he wishes you were hot, on fire, that you were fully invested, fully intimate, fully devoted to him, experiencing him on a daily basis. That's what he wishes. But if you're not going to be hot, then he wants you to be cold, an absolute God-denying blasphemer, an atheist, pagan, hating God, hating his creation, and hating other people, absolutely cold. But he doesn't want you to be in the middle because that's lukewarm. He wants you hot or pagan, but not in the middle. If you're in the middle, he's going to spit you out of his mouth. I've always had a hard time understanding that. It's like, why would God rather us be the worst of the worst than somewhere in the middle? I didn't get it. Until I had the privilege of walking into Laodicea for the very first time. Now, it's not a, a modern contemporary city. It's really an excavation site at this point. Archaeologists are digging it up. But, but all you have to do is walk into the city and you understand what this passage is talking about. And everybody gets it wrong. So I walk in and from where I was standing on my right were these snow-capped mountains were f refreshing, cold 
mountain water was always coming down. To my left were what looked like snow-capped foothills to the mountains, but they weren't snow-capped at all. They were capped with, with mineral deposits. They were so filled with minerals that it was turning white, and it was a hot water mineral spring where in the day, people from all over the world would travel there for healing and for comfort. Now, Laodicea was in between the two. Laodicea had the convergence of the cold water and the mineral hot water. And underneath Laodicea, it was just lukewarm, smelly, putrid water. Horrible to smell, impossible to drink. It would make you vomit. So they had to spend tons of money to make aqueducts to bring the fresh water into Laodicea. But the minute Jesus said this to the church, everyone knew what he was saying because context is key to understanding. He says, I just wish, I just wish that you and your relationship with God were cold, bringing refreshment and life to the lives of thirsty and starving people. Or I wish that you were hot, like those hot mineral springs bringing some kind of healing and some kind of comfort into the lives of people. But instead, you're like the putrid rot underneath your city. And as it makes you puke if you eat it, so your lives right now are making me puke. You've got to understand the languages to get into the Bible like I do. I mean, seriously. <laughs> I'm telling you, the context changed everything for me. God doesn't want me to be a pagan or to be that. God wants me to bring refreshment into the lives of people and life into the lives of people. God wants me to bring healing and comfort in life to people. God wants me to wake the world up to Jesus by showing his love and telling his truth and involving them. And that's what this passage is about. And that church wasn't. And that was a problem. Let's jump to John chapter 6. If you're newer to the Bible, the first four books of the New Testament are called Gospels, Good News Stories, and it kind of lays out the biography of Jesus' ministry in certain ways. And in John chapter 6, interesting story, a favorite of most people where Jesus walks on the water. Look at what he says in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake. That's the Sea of Galilee, a beautiful spot near where Jesus chose to live in his day. And they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. And that was Jesus' chosen hometown in his ministry. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. And a strong wind and blowing waters grew rough. And the Sea of Galilee is a place where it can be calm one minute. And all of a sudden it can be like life damaging in the next. I mean destructive and that's what was going on here. And they had rowed three or three and a half miles. And then they saw something interesting. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. Unique. I've seen it quite often in my day. I'm a water skier. But maybe you haven't. I don't know. Walking on the water. And they were terrified. But he said to them, it's not I. It's I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore when they were heading, where they were heading. Now, that passage on its own is pretty cool. I mean, seriously, it's just pretty cool. And you can understand some of the elements. Of course, you know, it's a stormy night. This dude's walking on the water. That's pretty unusual. Ooh, I'm afraid and that kind of thing. But, but there's so much more to this when you understand the context. When he walked on the water, it says he came off the mountain where he was praying. And they were on their way to Capernaum, so they weren't in Capernaum. And, and it could have been Mount Arbel, a mountain we're going to look at in this talk. 
crossing the Sea of Galilee like they were, you kind of picture it how we would do it. You'd go the shortest distance, right? You'd go across the lake to where you were going. But that's not how they were in this day. They were afraid to death of the depths of the water. Because they considered in that particular culture, and even though these were God-fearing people, the culture influenced that the depth of water was the abyss of the uncontrollable false gods that were worshipped in the day, the ones that couldn't be controlled and didn't care and couldn't be appeased, the ones that caused these storms and took lives randomly. And so they, they didn't go across the sea. They would go around. They would kind of play the shoreline. In fact, you can see this. Even fishermen didn't generally go across the depth of the abyss. Even fishermen kind of fished and netted close to the shore, very often type of seining. But even when they got deep enough to throw nets out, it was still close to the shore, which is why when Jesus was walking the beach, he could talk to them as they were fishing and throwing nets because they were afraid of the abyss. And then here comes Jesus walking over the abyss The deeper meaning, context, is key to understanding is simply this. In almost everything Jesus did, he was showing that he could walk on the heads of the gods. You you think the gods, small g, are powerful? Well, I'm more powerful because I can walk on their heads. You think the gods, small g, who create the storms in your mind are powerful? Well, I can calm the storm. I'm God. Everything he did was proving, once again, that people were fearing the wrong things and trusting the wrong things. He was the one to know and to trust, and yet we still have a hard time with it today. Just one more illustration. I want you to see Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. The the disciples of Jesus just came off a pretty big failure, and they were asking Jesus how come they messed up and how come they failed. And look what he says in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. He replied, it's because you have so little faith. I tell you the truth, he goes on, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, I mean just an ounce of faith, less than an ounce of faith, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, I need to remind you, because I consistently need to remind myself, that, that Jesus is real. The story of Jesus is real. The events of Jesus' life as God's delivered them to us are real. It really happened. But, but because of the distance between us and him, because of the distance between our time and his time, it can start to seem a lot like fantasy. Quite unbelievable. And then you throw in passages like this. You can say to this mountain, move here and move there. And it's like, come on. It's that. It sounds more like a fairy tale than the real deal. And we're so far and distance from it, don't understand the context that we miss it. But here again, when you understand the context, it can open up your understanding. Uh, let me give you a glimpse into this. Have you ever, who, how many of you have ever heard of Herod the Great? Figure of history, Herod the Great. Well, if you haven't heard of him, many of you have, but if you haven't heard of him, you're going to hear about him in this series because he's the antithesis of everything Jesus was. He's like the illustration of the kingdom of men versus the kingdom of God. And we're going to really dive headlong into him a little bit during this series. But, but let me give you a glimpse. Herod the Great was a man of profound wealth, wealthier really than probably anyone on the planet now, and powerful in his own right in this region of the world. Very powerful and obsessed to keep his power. 
to protect it. So obsessed to protect his power that he killed his wife, killed one of his sons, killed a multitude of people indiscriminately. This is a guy who actually had imprisoned some of the most respected people of his day shortly before he was to die because though he was hated, he was going to ensure when he died there would be mourning in the land. This is how this guy viewed the world. And just to ring another bell for you, he's the guy that to protect his power when he heard there was another king of the Jews, which was his title, that was born into the world, he killed every boy child two years and younger in that region of the world. He didn't care about anyone but himself, and he was going to do anything to protect his power. Have a picture into his life yet? All right, well, he was big on palaces. Wanted to build ostentatious palaces to prove he was someone. And since he was the king of the Jews, and he knew a bit about prophecy, that the Bible said that a king to the Jews would be born in Bethlehem, he decided that he needed to watch over that part of the world. And so he was going to build, as was his style, a palace on a mountain, on a super high hill, where he could oversee Bethlehem and protect his power. I mean, if you've ever heard of Masada, it was one of his palaces on a high hill. This guy was big on being seen and seeing. And so he went about to do it. The problem was there was no mountain by Bethlehem that he could build his palace on. Kind of a problem. So he did what any arrogant, obscenely rich guy would do. Can you guess? He built a mountain. He actually moved some hills and stuff around to another place overlooking Bethlehem and built a mountain. He moved it from here to there. I've been on this. It's the palace is called the Herodian. I've walked up it. It was unbelievable spread. It was able to keep his eye on everything. Everybody in the region of the world of that day knew that Herod had moved a mountain from here to there. They knew that if you were as powerful, as obsessed, and as wealthy as Herod, you could do anything you wanted. You could move a mountain from here to there, but it just made them feel more puny and more powerless and more detached. Wish I could be like him. I wish I could control my world. I wish I could control the outcomes. I wish I could create this kind of life for myself. And it's to these people who thought that only the Herods of this world could really, really live that Jesus spoke, Matthew 17, 20, where he says, I'm going to tell you a truth. Even if you have just an ounce of faith, as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. I've stood on the Mount of Olives with people from our church, and you can see the mountain that Herod moved from here to there. Everyone knew about it. And Jesus was simply telling them, I know that you feel like you're pawns of people like Herod. I know that Herod and all of his power and all of his wealth wouldn't consider you, doesn't care about you, you could never touch the hem of his garment, and he'll never do anything to offset your life. But I want you to know, if you just put a little bit of faith in God, his power is available to you. And to God, Herod is puny. To God, Herod is nothing. And you can have his power available to you. I'm telling you, it's amazing. The context is the key to understanding God's truth. It changes it. To these people, it made sense 
To us, it doesn't until we dig into the context. And so what we're going to do is we're going to seek to reveal the context of pillar truths of, of Christianity, of the journey of Christ followers, so that you can understand in new ways what it's about. I believe this series has the potential to help you understand the context of these truths, how your faith originated, what your faith was originally intended to be, who you were originally intended to be, which is why we call the series Origins. And one last thought before I dive in. One of the reasons people who go to Israel experience the Bible in new ways is because when they're in Israel, they pour their lives 24-7 into studying it, into looking at it, into understanding it. You want this series to make a difference in your life? Then take what we talk about in these settings and invest yourself 24-7 in going deeper and going further, and I promise you the Bible will come alive, Jesus will come alive in your life in new ways, in profound ways. Where I want to start is in a place called Mount Arbel. And I know if you've ever thought about going to the Holy Land, you've never said, man, the one thing I want to do if I go to the Holy Land is go to Mount Arbel. I mean, you might have thought of Jerusalem, you might have thought of Bethlehem, but you've never thought of Mount Arbel. But this is where I want to start. Because it really does highlight what is truly the foundational truth of anyone who's going to know God. You see, there's another name for Mount Arbel, and it's Prayer Mountain. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful setting. It's a place where you can, when you're on top of it, because it's one of the highest things around the Sea of Galilee, you can see the entire region of Galilee spreading out. It is a gorgeous deal. It was there that Jesus often climbed to pray. Now, the Bible never says he climbed Mount Arbel, but it's so close to his chosen home of Capernaum, and it's such a a beautiful mountain. There's no way, in my view, that he didn't climb this thing. Look what the Bible says, if you would, in Mark chapter 6, verse 46. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. You should go through the Bible and see all the times he went up on a mountainside to pray. This guy prayed on mountainsides. He kept walking up mountains and praying on mountains. And it's very likely this is one he went up to. And I, until I experienced the context of Mount Arbel, I didn't get it. I, was, I always just read past this. He went up on a mountainside to pray. Okay, let's get to the important stuff. He went up on a mountainside to pray. Yeah, 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 let's get to the important stuff. He went up on a mountainside to pray. Let's get to the important stuff. Do you know what the important stuff is, I've discovered? He went up on the mountainside to pray. That's the important stuff. And I kept jumping over it, looking for the point, looking for the climax of the story, looking for something better. But after being there, I'm going to tell you, it changed my view of what Jesus did. Watch. When I read the Bible, and I'm sure it's true for you as well, it's... It's hard to believe that it's any more than a, an imagined story, a, a fairy tale, because it seems so far away and distant, but it's not, it's real. I, I'm sitting where the life of Jesus took place. This is the Sea of Galilee. It's where he did the bulk of his ministry, and I'm on Mount Arbel, Prayer Mountain. This is one of the places Jesus would have climbed to spend time with God.
what he came to show us was who God really is. And because of him, because he was here, we now can know the real God in a real way. We just have to claim it. He went up on a mountainside to pray. Now let me tell you, when we take people to Israel, we go to Mount Arbel. And even though there is a road that the bus can go on all the way to the top, we get off the bus and we walk up the mountainside. It's an amazing experience for me because I know exactly what's going to happen with everyone who's there. They are going to whine and whine and whine and whine and we have no cheese available for them. I mean, they wimp. Why oh, do we have to climb it? The bus can go. It's so hard. Oh, oh. You know, it's kind of like we in America. And then we get to the top and we talk about prayer and they think, where's the bus? And we go, no, Jesus didn't climb up the mountain to pray and then take a bus down. So then we climb down, they whine and they complain and they're upset and they give us fingers behind our back. It's an amazing thing. And then they get to the bottom and it becomes one of the greatest experiences they have. They go around and they don't tell everyone how much they whine. They say, I climb Mount Arbel, you know. <laughs> becomes a great experience. But you say, I don't understand. I mean, what's this have to do with prayer? Well, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Here's what I can tell you I get from being in the context. He was serious, serious, deadly serious about prayer. And it wasn't this simple little thing that he did in an easy chair where he took out other people's writings and other people's thoughts and in a ritualistic way quoted them to try and curry God's favor. For him, he was going to do the work, the hard work of prayer. He was serious about getting alone with God, so serious that he'd climb mountains to get away and to be with him. Prayer for Jesus wasn't a simple add-on. It wasn't something he did when it was convenient for him, when he was busy running around doing more important stuff. Now listen to me. If you're going to climb a mountain and pray, prayer's the point. The definition for him of his relationship with God was prayer. It was arduous work. It was tough work. He climbed mountains to do it. And the reason he climbed mountains, I believe, in part, was to teach us about prayer. Because the way we tend to think of it is we see it as something easy, as a tack-on. But it's because we don't understand the context. So all I want to do is I want to, because it's such a big part of who we were originally designed to be, to be people in relationship with God, peopled, living in full dependence upon God, I just want to share with you about this important tenet of faith called prayer. I want you to see that when Jesus came to earth, he unmistakably identified his, himself with God's people and as one of God's people through prayer. That's how he identified himself, by calling on the name of the Lord. That's what prayer is, calling on the name of the Lord, being in conversation with the Lord, but it's so much more than just talk. Look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. It says, at the very beginning, after the fall of man, that a change occurred. And it said, at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Men began to call on the name of the Lord. They, they set themselves apart as being different by calling on the name of the Lord. Most weren't. They did. 
And this then became the tag, the name for those who were in relationship with God. They were people who called on the name of the Lord. I mean, it's, it's said of Abraham, he called on the name of the Lord. It's said of Elijah, he called on the name of the Lord. The psalmist says it of himself, I've called on the name of the Lord. It identified God's people. Interestingly enough, it also was the way you could identify the wicked and those who didn't know God. Look at Psalm 14, verse 4. It says, well, evildoers never learn. And then he defines evildoers. You know, those who devour God's people, you know, as men eat bread. You want to know what an evildoer is? Then he defines it. Those who do not call on the Lord. Those who do not call on the Lord. Can I just tell you, there are two kinds of people on the planet. There are two kinds of people right here listening to this talk. It's not different ethnicities. It's not different denominations. It's not different religious. It's not different cultures. There are two kinds of people. Those who call on the name of the Lord and those who don't. Those are the two kinds of people. Jesus was one who called on the name of the Lord. The earliest name for God's people stemmed from the most basic and foundational activity of God's people, prayer, having a conversation with God. It's basic to who we're supposed to be as human beings and as God's people. And, and here's why. You ready? Why is prayer the foundation? It reflects dependence. Absolute dependence. I need you, God. I can't live without you, God. I want you, God. Help me, God. Jesus lived a life of prayer. It characterized his life, his ministry, and his leadership. He was one who called on the name of the Lord. Now, let me give you the next logical thought. If we're going to genuinely follow Christ, which is what Christians, those called Christians, are supposed to do, if we're going to genuinely follow Christ, we must become people who call on the name of the Lord. Not, not people who talk about the name of the Lord. Not, not people who sing about the name of the Lord. Those things are fine. Not people who gather in places called church in the name of the Lord. Not, not people who give in the name of the Lord. Important things. We, if we're going to genuinely follow Christ, must become people who call on the name of the Lord. Let me just show you some New Testament passages on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 2. The church of God in Corinth, together with all those everywhere. This is who I'm writing to. Those who call on the name of the Lord. There are those who do and those who don't. So important was it to Jesus' life that when he was asked the question, would you teach us something, it was, will you teach us to pray? Because his life was characterized by calling on the name of the Lord. And so in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, he said, this is then how you should pray. He taught us how to pray, how to call on the name of the Lord. And it's not this cute little ritual. He says you shouldn't just do it in redundancy, expressing other people's thoughts with no passion of your own. You want to pray? You want to call on the name of the Lord? Then you need to say, it's not about my kingdom. It's not about my will. It's not about what I want. It's not about me. It's about you. You're not here to serve me. I'm here to serve you. Call on the name of the Lord. He taught us. And then Paul, whose life was dramatically changed when he went from being a man who didn't call on the name of the Lord, though religious, to a man who did call on the name of the Lord, rejected by the religious. Look what he wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. And you need to know, this is the whole verse. Two words. Pray continually. 
Now, I'm going to tell you, that verse threw me off when I first came to it. It doesn't throw you off. Pray continually. What am I, supposed to be babbling continually? No. Because prayer isn't about talking necessarily. It's about depending absolutely. Depending on him. Trusting in him. Calling on him. Him being the foundation of your life. It's a big deal. Of course, it's easier said than done. It's, it's easier for me to sit up here and talk about it than do it. In fact, I'm just going to tell you, um, I would rather talk about it than do it. But I can't tell you that I do it well. In fact, I'm going to tell you the truth about me. And it's easy for me to tell you the truth about me because I also know it's the truth about you even though you're not very honest about it at times like I'm not at times. There is probably no single activity in the Christian life that is more unnatural, that is harder work than prayer. And I know what people go, it's easy. I get out my prayer book and I just read that stuff and it's awesome. Throw a couple of chips in the plate and got, that's not it. It's the most unnatural hard work I have to go about in my life and I don't do it well. You know why? We as human beings were born with a desire for independence and autonomy. You see, we've been given the nature of Adam and Eve who decided that they were going to move away from God and in so doing, we have been given this natural drive to be self-made, self-sufficient, self-secure, and self-dependent. Or in Satan's words in Genesis 3, to be like God. We have a drive to be like God, to be our own God. Whereas prayer, by its very nature, is an honest admission that we are by no means like God. Prayer is a clear acknowledgement that, that our need for God is absolute, that we can't do life without him, without his help. And without a doubt, it's unnatural for us to pray. It is for me. I want you to think that I'm self-made. I want you to think that I'm strong. But the truth is, I'm not self-made, and I'm not strong. And the truth is, nor are you. We need God. It's an absolute. This is why when we don't call on the name of the Lord, we never really live. And when we do, we finally live for the first time. We need him. We must pray. We must totally surrender our self-sufficiency, our self-dependence, if we're going to live the lives and find the fullness that God designed for us originally, if we're going to go back to our origins. Because that's how God designed us. He designed us to live dependent upon him, totally dependent on him. When Jesus came into the world, he showed us Life is designed to be lived in dependence. Though he was the son of God, the creator of the world, in his humanity he made himself fully dependent upon the Father. He did nothing independently. Let me give you the wake up to Jesus truth for this weekend. We should do nothing independently. And therein lies the rub. Most of us do almost all things independently asking God for his help while we do our life and do our business and build our kingdom but that's not what it is to call on the name of the Lord you can call yourself a Christian and not call on the name of the Lord you can say prayers and not call on the name of the Lord it's about saying I will do nothing on my own I will do everything in dependence on him this is not a cute little religious tack on to life 
This becomes the foundation of the whole deal. And just so you can see it, let's look at Jesus. Look at John chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. So Jesus said, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, when you nail me to the cross and kill me, that's when you'll know that I am the one I claim to be. That's when you'll know that I do nothing on my own. You claim that you're killing me in the name of the Father, but you're going to see that I am the one who's representing the Father. I speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. And look at why. For I always do what pleases him. He never did anything independent of the Father. He did everything in full dependence on the Father, which is why he's the only human who ever walked this planet, who never sinned, who never failed, because he did nothing that was self-made. He did nothing in his self-sufficiency. He did nothing in self-dependence. He did everything in full dependence on the Father. He didn't just call on the name of the Lord once in a while. He lived by calling on the name of the Lord. That's where he found his life. That's a pretty big deal. And just so you know, it's not an accident that this happened. Look at Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 and 5. This is 700 years before Jesus was born into this world to live out his human experience. And it says, The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. 700 years before he came, he says, I want you to know... I am going to have an instructed tongue that knows just what to say at just the right time. I am going to deliver talks like the Sermon on the Mount that become the pinnacle talk, the pinnacle truths that the entire world spins on. But there's going to be a reason that I'm able to speak the right word to those who are weary, and it's because every single morning, morning after morning, I am going to wake in full dependence on the Father. He's going to instruct me, and I'm going to listen. He'll tell me what to say, and I'll say it. He'll tell me where to go, and I'll go. I'll live in dependence, and his life changed the world. Prayer played a vital and pivotal role in every occasion of Jesus' life, and I've given you a bunch of passages that you can turn to this week, and I hope that you'll dig into them. But let me tell you what you'll get out of them. Prayer always played a vital part before the important events of Jesus' life. Jesus always prayed before important events in his life. I gave you Luke 6, 12, and 13. He prayed all night before he chose his 12 first followers. Pretty big choice. He prayed all night. Do you, you know why I make so many bad choices in life? I think it's revealed right here. I haven't made one choice after an entire night of prayer. Because I'm, you know, I, I could figure it out, you know? One plus one equals two, right? Not when there's God involved. He prayed before important events. Jesus always prayed before and after his great achievements. Always. He always prayed before and after his great achievements. And I gave you Matthew 14, 23, and 25. It says, after he dismissed them from what? From the feeding of the 5,000, where God used him to take a couple of of fish and some loaves of bread and feed 5,000 men, which meant probably tens of thousands of people. I mean, this unbelievable miracle happened, right? He dismissed them. And what was the first thing he did? He went up on a mountain and he prayed, man, God, that you met their need, that you used me that way, that you answered that way. That is just unbelievable. And then after praying on that mountainside, he says he came down and during the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went on to them walking on the lake. You know, I have this desire I have this great desire for God to use me in great ways. 
I want to be a part of God moments, great achievements where lives are transformed and changed. But I don't experience nearly as much of that as I'd like, and I'm going to tell you why. It's because I don't call on the name of the Lord like he does. I think the absence of us being a part of more of those things we have this inner longing to be a part of, great God moments, is simply because we're trying to microwave them into our experience. We're asking God to join us on our journey instead of us being like Jesus and saying, my life's yours. I can't do it without you like he did with the Father. Jesus always prayed, no matter how successful or busy he was, always. This is important to me because it, it seems to me that the more successful I would become in certain adventures of my life and the busier I'd become at certain seasons of my life, the less I'd pray. I mean, when I wasn't successful, I needed to pray a lot to be successful. But then when I was there, woohoo, life's great. But that wasn't Jesus. I gave you Luke 5, 15 and 16. It says, the news about him spread all the more. Crowds were growing. People were coming for him to touch them and heal them. And what did Jesus do? Hired an agent so that he could have more speaking engagements to take him into retirement. No, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I mean, he always prayed. person I have the privilege of knowing fairly well wrote a book and came up with a title that I've always been jealous of, which is another sin problem, but that'll come in another talk sometime. But the, the book was called Too Busy Not to Pray. What? Too busy not to pray. I'm too busy to pray, which is my problem. How about you? There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who do the arduous work of climbing the monarch bells of their life and calling on the name of the Lord, trying to overcome their independence and overcome their weaknesses and to climb into the lap of God the Father and call on him and those who don't. And I tend to be one of those who doesn't. Jesus always prayed, no matter what was happening in his life, good or bad, I mean, when he was overwhelmed with sorrow, what did he do? He prayed. I found there are two kinds of us, really. We're all made out of the same stuff, but we, we act differently. I have found that there are those of us who pray a lot during the good times. Man, God, you're good. The sun is shining. You're awesome. God is good. And bumper stickers go on the car. And then when bad times come, we get PO'd at God, and we take the bumper stickers off, and we don't wear the clothes anymore, and we don't talk to them. Then there are those of us who, during the good times, it's like, you know, things are good. Why do I need God? But during the bad times, that's when we're really praying and begging God. But the truth is, Jesus called on the name of the Lord in good times and bad times. It never changed. You know why his life was so faithful and consistent? Because every day he woke up and was calling on the name of the Lord, living in dependence, which explains my roller coaster experience and yours. Jesus, if I could just sum it up, died as he lived, praying. Jesus died as he lived, praying. In Luke 23, 46, he called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Who dies praying? I mean, 
I'm going to die saying more morphine. <laughs> I'm just trying to be honest, man. I'm going to be thinking me, me, me. He died praying. You know who dies praying? The person who lives praying. You know who goes through suffering praying? The person who goes through success praying. There are those who call on the name of the Lord and those who don't. Those who climb Mount Abel and those who just simply try and send a message to God by telegraph. Jesus called on the name of the Lord because he never wanted, and get this, he never wanted to experience one moment without the Father because he knew one moment without the Father was the true definition of hell. And why we would choose hell on earth when we could have heaven on earth is beyond me. But I do. And so do you. But he's given us this privilege. We can climb the mountain and pray. We can make it the point to call on the name of the Lord. We can make it what we do. Now, I want to give you the conclusion. It's a simple conclusion. And I want to encourage you, whether you're here in one of our live settings or you're, you're, you're watching online, what happens when I usually give the conclusion point, fill in the last blank, you know, you guys are using your automatic start, starting your cars, and you're gone. I get it. But I'm really asking you, stick with me until I give you the two verses after the conclusion. Lives change. Lives change when we become people who pray. It seems like every day I'm complaining to someone or I'm complaining to God about how I want my life to change. Lives change when we become people who pray. Not become people who ask God to join our agenda, but people who give up our independence and depend on him and trust him in good times and bad. Lives change. Let me just give you the two passages. Romans 10, 13. It's an Old Testament promise that's repeated a couple of times in the New Testament. Look at Romans 10, 13. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember the point of this whole talk? Context is the key to understanding. You know what most people think that means? If you just go... You know, God save me. Give me some fire insurance. I don't want to go to that hell place if it's real. I just want to go to the heaven place. That'd be cool. And, you know, I, I said that little prayer when I was 10. I said that little prayer at 12. I said that little prayer here a year ago. And, woohoo, thumbs up, protected. Now I can go about living my life. That's not what it means. There are a lot of people who think they've been saved, who think they know God, who don't have a clue about him. Jesus even said, many will say, Lord, and he'll say, I never knew you. Why? Because though they said his name and talked about his name and sang about his name and stayed in places where his name was talked about, they never became people who called on his name because calling on his name 
demands that I repent and acknowledge that I have lived independent of him, that I've wanted to be my own God, that I wanted to be self-made and self-sufficient and self-secure and self-dependent, and I could do life on my own. And in so doing, I left him out and I sinned against him. You can't call on the name of the Lord until you repent. And you can't call on the name of the Lord until you then trust your life to him in full dependence, knowing that only Jesus lived the story that deserves to know God. But then Jesus took our place in dying for sin on the cross and then rose again so he could say, though you tried to be self-made, I was always God-made, and because of that, you now can be God-made, redeemed through me. But you've got to call on the name of the Lord. And so just before I give you the last passage, I'm going to ask if you'd bow with me in just a word of prayer, just for a moment, just for a moment. And if you've never really repented of your independence and trusted yourself independence to him, make this your moment. It's not a religious moment. It's a life-changing moment. Pray with me. Say in my words, but express it with your heart. God, I've lived the wrong way doing what I want in my way independent of you but in this moment I'm calling on your name repenting of my sin and turning to you and putting my full trust in Jesus who died and was buried and rose again. Save me. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you did just pray with me, I just really encourage you. We give you these programs when you come in. And inside is a connection card, which is a tool for you to move forward in your relationship with God. All you have to do is fill it out, and on the bottom, check that circle that says, I prayed with you just now. And there are boxes at every exit. Throw it in there. And we've put together a letter that can help you navigate next steps in your relationship with God. And really, we want to celebrate with you. Let us know you made the decision. If you're watching online, hit the next step button and we'll do the same thing for you. Last verse, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. <laughs> can we all just laugh collectively right now at that? Don't be anxious about anything. Some of you right now are anxious. It is 7 after 12, and he's not done. Jeez. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. That's impossible. It's impossible. Yes, when you're one of those people who doesn't call on the name of the Lord. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Don't be anxious. Be someone who calls on the name of the Lord and look at the transformation that occurs. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Lives change when we call on the name of the Lord. When God becomes the destination and the definition of our lives, when we begin to struggle, as hard as it is, against our independence to depend on him, when we climb Mount Arbel and we pray, life changes. Let's change our lives this week. See you next time.